Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod, here we are on Blue Monday. Blue Monday, is it the most depressing day of the year, is that how that works? Yeah, apparently so, I hadn't really thought about it if I'm honest, but it was cold, it was back at work, but I've been back at work for over a week, so I, I don't know, I didn't find it too bad today if I'm honest, and I get to podcast in the evening with you. Yeah, that's definitely the high point of my day as well, is getting to chat to you. It is cold here as well. Uh, I think it's been one or two degrees most of the day, a bit of frost around this morning. Pretty pretty dark walking the dog first thing. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that because I don't get up first thing. But no, it's, it's looking pretty good here. And we, we, we apparently do some snow on Wednesday, which I think my children are quite excited about. I think they're praying for a day off school. So I'll update you next week as to whether we've got snow. I was just about to check on my phone. I'm using my phone for my camera this week, so I can't just quickly check the weather. And I've no idea what state the weather app is on my Mac. So I don't even know if they do weather on the Mac, do they? There is a weather. Mm, it's, it's a good question. Good question. Uh, I, I, this is the. Oh no, there, there is a weather application on the Mac. It would seem oh, something is launching. Yeah, it would make it's sense because they did it on the iPad, so it makes sense that they share it with the, with the Mac. But as Apple Music Classical <laughs> demonstrates, they don't always do those things. Or, indeed, the calculator app that isn't on the iPad. Yeah, that is just bonkers. It's minus one degree where I am. There you go. Shall we say it's episode 103? It's the 15th of January, and we're Rod and Chris, and shall we get into it? Let's just do it, yeah. Some follow-up. Some follow-up. So first up, we've got Apple Ready's Apple Watch Series 9 band workaround by disabling the blood oxygen functionality, which I'm quite surprised they're going to have to do this. What do you think? I think it's an international ruling. Apple aren't immune to these things as well. If it's got to be done, it's got to be done, and Apple just need to get on and do it. It's quite interesting to take functionality away from people by software, normally the ad stuff. Yes, so how does this work? Um, So imagine I bought an Apple Watch 9. I haven't. Or um, an Apple Watch Ultra 2. Is it just those it's going to impact, or is it going to... I think it is infringing all of them, but that detail doesn't necessarily come over. I think it's definitely the Series 9 and the Ultra Watch 2. But my Series 1 Apple Watch Ultra, I presume, A, I'm not in the United States, so it doesn't affect me, and B, doesn't matter because it's these two that are specifically part of this. I think if you brought your Apple Watch in for repair, maybe it would be different. It's got this far. But maybe they've decided it's these Series 9 slash Ultra Watch 2 that are particularly infringing. But we saw before that the others were. So it is slightly confusing, isn't it? Yeah, it's confusing. So I think we should leave this here and wait for the full release to come out of what this means. But it's going to be interesting, though, to see if they take it out of existing owner, you know, disable it from existing owners' devices, because, you know, would they see some returns off the back of this? I don't know how many people buy it for that functionality. So, yeah, just be interested to see how this, this plays out. Let's face it, I don't think it was the greatest feature release. They kind of underplayed it a little bit during the COVID times for its accuracy, and the same way they've underplayed or at least found a new use for the thermometer part of the Apple Watch. So I, I don't think most people are there checking their pulse ox, you know, pulse oximetry every day on an Apple Watch. It's not the end of the world. The rest of the Apple Watch features are there. It's just a nice additional thing, isn't it? Yeah, do you know what? I think they've downplayed a lot of the health features because of the inaccuracy. And you'll know far more about this than me, but it seems to be they release it, but uses a big asterisk, a couple of daggers to, to denote that it, it's not exact. It's not a medical device. If you go to an ED or an ITU and you attach a pulse oximeter to your finger, which uses an infrared thing and, and actually looks under at your capillaries as part of what it does, you're getting a far more accurate reason, reading with all the algorithms and software that's built into dedicated medical devices for pulse oximetry. This is not that, although it does its best to do so. So, yeah, it's it's only a, 
finger in the air get a feeling for how it's going as much as anything else and in fact one of the things you can go to boots in the uk and buy for about 25 quid is probably far more accurate than you know your 500 dollar apple watch ultra 2 anyway so if you need your pulse oximetry measuring that carefully you should have one of those devices not an apple watch anyway so not the end of the world yeah fair enough uh, should we move on then so we've also got vision pro demos will include scanning your glasses to identify your prescription that's quite cool that is quite cool and this is one of the questions we had when we were talking about this last week is what's the sales process going to look like what's the demo process going to look like so they have said that uh, a bunch of geniuses or at least apple salespeople from each apple store in america went back to cupertino were taught specifically about the device and things like this would have been covered i guess there's still a lot we don't know about the vision pro release but this is just another piece to the puzzle that if you do go in and you want to try one they'll scan your glasses with this app uh instead of you having to remember your prescription which is pretty cool less cool if you wear contacts i guess the, you know you're not going to pop that out of your eye and let somebody scan one of those things so go with your glasses and you know in a pouch i suppose and you'll get to try them i guess in the same way when the apple watch came out that you're going to have to book a demo a specific one so you've got that half an hour slot or whatever it is so they can run through the demo with you but how do they identify this? Well, is anybody able to book one of these? Or have you got to be a high roller when you come in? Oh, we've got a dedicated history of you buying tens of thousand pounds worth of Apple gear so to drop for one of these things. So this is interesting that they have actually got a method to be able to demo these properly in the store. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a couple of things here, though. You know, when the Vision Pro comes out, or, or you can pre-order next week, I think actually it's this week I tell a lie, it's the 19th. Can I go on my phone at home if I was in America, scan my glasses, and then it tell me what my prescription is so I can just order online? Are they going to be allowed to order online or is it order online and then go in store to pick up? I don't, I don't, not much has come out, I think is where I'm trying to go with this. It seems very quiet. I think Apple, I don't know, it's a bit odd. They haven't really done a video or an update since WWDC. But I wonder if it's because this is very much seen as a development kit that they're kind of releasing to the world if they want it. But actually, for most people, you should stay for ver- wait for version two because this is very expensive. Maybe they've priced it high so it is for developers. Start getting the ecosystem going and get those cool apps, products there so that when the next one comes along, it will be lower price, aimed more for mass market. I don't know. It's, it seems a very odd release for Apple because it, you know, they did a video for when they released minor updates to the MacBooks Pros last year. If you remember this time last year, we got a, a video about the MacBook Pro chip update. And it was minor, you know, it went from the M1 to the M2s, you know, Pro and Ultra chips. I think the HDMI port was better or something like that. But it was very minor. But yet they still did a nice crafted 20 minute video. Launched a new, whole new platform to the world to buy. Nothing, just a press release and a website. It just seems very odd how they're doing it. And I wonder if they should have said it is a dev kit but they haven't said it's a dev kit, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does make a kind of sense. It's to get it into people's, not hearts, but minds, if they can see them in stores and maybe try them out. They can get a feeling for actually seeing what they're like. i got to say, as I read more into the software that's going to be available from Apple on release, I don't think the story is told yet. I think they're almost getting this out the door before it's baked. When you hear that only Keynote is sort of the first Apple product that's going to be have a decent workable version of it on there, not even pages, not even numbers to make use of this kind of stuff. And they're relying on third-party developers, which I think are the audience for this, frankly, to get this out the door. And then you see stories like this where, you know, you've got to scan your face with your phone and see what face seal you need. You've got to scan your glasses with your phone and see what inserts you need. This is just a demo in a shop, as far as I can see. And the lucky few, because they're not going to be able to make that many of them, are going to get them. And then the even luckier few who have three and a half thousand dollars 
For the base spec, I presume there's going to be more than one spec, because 256 gig ain't a lot on an Apple device, as well we know. This is a version zero product again, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you're right. I'm still super interested. I'd love to try one. But it does feel like a dev kit. I'm amazed that they've done Keynote rather than, say, Pages. You'd have thought Pages would be simpler than trying to do presentations and animations. But I thought they would just be, you know, load it up in Xcode, take your iPad version, file, save as native for Vision Pro. You know, a little bit of work and tweaking and off we go. But obviously, they're not ready yet either. I wonder if it will ship with uh, Apple Music Classical. That would be quite a thing, wouldn't it, if it comes there before it comes to other platforms? I bet it will, because it hasn't got the Mac legacy, has it? So it probably will go there before it goes anywhere else. Mac legacy, I really don't like that. i got to say, you know, I've said this a couple of times, and I don't mean to be demeaning. I'm always the person that goes, I don't see the point of that. And then I'm stood in the queue going, shut up and give me your, take my money. Uh, as are you, actually. Well, you're a bit more positive about this than I am, but I think I've got a little bit more direct experience of VR, AR stuff, having tried Google Glass, having had the version one Sony product. I've got a feeling for the kinds of things that it does. And this, I hope, has got that Apple special sauce. But I've said it a few times, and I don't mean it to sound as negative as I do, but just strapping an iPad to my head and giving me a little bit of depth on it isn't a great way to sell me a new platform, frankly. And I worry about things like, the wonderful demo of opening up your Mac and it appearing in the corner. Awesome. But what's the lag going to be like? Am I going to be able to play games through that? Probably not. Macs aren't great at games the first time. What is the lag between a virtual Mac in the corner and that screen popping up? You know, am I going to have to take off my wonderful $3,500 headset to have a, de- a game of No Man's Sky? Seems a bit pointless. Yeah, no, I... I understand your concerns, and I probably agree with nearly all of them. I'm super. I just love trying new stuff when it comes out, and I love seeing how it iterates. And I'm gutted we're going to miss version one. With the Mac thing, though, when you screen share onto your Mac, which is in essence what you're doing, with Sonoma that came out in September October, they've actually changed it. So when you connect to a Mac running Sonoma, you can run it in like quicker mode. I, I you know where it actually logs logs the person out, so that you can't actually use the Mac. So you're not mirroring the screen. You're taking over over the Mac, if that makes sense, because I tried that recently. So if you connect one Mac to another, which I did set up my podcast setup, I put it in that mode and everything's going to be a bit quicker and refresh quicker because you're not screen sharing. Quite what the difference in lag is, I don't know, but I don't think you'll be able to play a game on it. There will be lag. Yeah, there's oh, got to be you know, something, hasn't there? There will be blood and there will be lag. And and let's face it, that if you think of Steam links and all that kind of stuff and Sony sharing games are in those with dedicated hardware and very fast network connections and all the rest of it, they say you shouldn't play first-person shooters and things like that because it's too laggy. There's no way. No matter how good the screen sharing is, it's not going to be the same as the instant response you get on your 120 hertz or better screen that you're connecting to. Now, fair enough, there's not a lot of Mac games that support that anyway. That's a consideration, but there will be lag. So how much of that you're willing to accept on a device that's strapped to your face when you're used to the instant response from whatever the keynote app or is? I'm Again, I'm being demeaning and I don't mean to be. This could be amazing, and the people that have tried it say it's a transformative experience from everything I've heard so far. So I'll try and ch- chain my skepticism. I would, if, Let's face it, if there were demos in Apple stores, I'd be down there tomorrow, same as you. Of course I would, because I want to see what it's like. We have an Apple podcast. We talk about Apple stuff. Of course we're interested in these kinds of things. I just, I'm, I actually have more skepticism than I usually would for an Apple product. 
Yeah, I can, I can understand it. Let's just keep watching this space, I think. We better move on, otherwise we're, we're going to go very long on the show. We, we could also call this main show instead of follow-up tonight. <laughs> well, there is that. Whilst we are on follow-up, though, I was going to say briefly about Zoom and my continuity camera not working. It's why we were late recording last week. And all I did this week was open settings, security and privacy camera, turn off Zoom, having access to my camera, go into Zoom. It goes, you haven't got access to the camera. Click close the meeting and then go back to send and turn it back on did all that went back into zoom joined the meeting and it all worked fine so the the traditional turn it off and back on save my bacon annoyingly i didn't do the obvious last week which i should have done so we're now up and running which is great because my podcast setup as i wanted it with a dedicated mac slash desk space is all here so hopefully it sounds good for the listener and i've got my quiet keyboard and mouse and i've using my iphone as we just discussed opening the weather app so let's try it out you got to remember to wave the rubber chicken and turn around three times. It's just the way it is. So frustrating. Anyway, should we move on to the news? Let's move on to the news. Tell us why it's a bad time to be a tech wor- worker in our first story. Yeah, this is pretty depressing because I thought we were through tech layoffs, but uh, it feels like a few other companies are have, having their, their turn. Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure how many people Google are laying off because they're being very... They're not being very accurate about their reporting. They're laying off a few hundred in various departments. Is that adding up to a thousand? Is that adding up to a several thousand? We don't know. Google employ a vast number of people. I think it's about 180,000 people worldwide, which I'll be honest, actually blew my mind that it was that many. But it's not good. They're laying off people in AR. And obviously, we've just spent the, the, the pre-show, the follow-up section, talking about Apple releasing their AR to the world and yet here's google laying off a bunch so it's interesting what they're doing uh, apparently the uh, fitbit leaders are going as well so is this just typical google where they've got five work streams going at once to see which one sticks and then actually they're now converging them into smaller work streams because obviously they, they had fitbit but they've just released the new google pixel watch and have they got multiple ar streams going and they're just you know condensing it down now they've got clear direction it's hard to know with google because the way they run things they don't just you know put all their effort into one and see how that develops they have multiple streams going at once or they make acquisitions and then try and fold it in and they're not always the best custodian of a company they've purchased yeah and we've talked about this before but google just randomly not randomly but just deciding to end a product's life cycle you know it's happened several times now and i've experienced this a little bit the problems with fitbit at work so we've been trying to get a project up and running where we try to see if consumer level wearables are comparable to what happens in the medical world so for that we want access to that data and fitbit used to have a platform where participants their users could opt in to share their data anonymously identifiably into a central platform that we as researchers with permission could go into and lift that data out of or we could write our own and fitbit would be quite happy to let us dip in and get that data and that felt right and proper in the same way apple health will let users extract their own data from it and do whatever they want with it google has shut all this down and they've increasingly made it and from Google's point of view, quite rightly so, increasing the security of what's going on with the Fitbit platform. But what we can see happening with them laying off specifically lots of Fitbit people is Fitbit's going to go away. Whatever they liked will be rolled into the Google Wear, I think is the actual wearable platform that they've got. And that's what will go in their watches. And I kind of get that, but it feels bad for the Fitbit people. It does. And actually, Fitbits are prevalent in my house. My kids have got them. My wife has one. I would be a little sad to see it go. I've actually come away from it. I just use my my phone to tell me how many steps I'm doing. I'm quite comfortable with that. My phone's in my pocket the whole time. My wife tried it, though, but where it's in her handbag the whole time, it just didn't really work for her. Whereas I think most men are different in that respect in that it's usually pocketed. It is a shame to see Fitbit go this way. 
because they were trailblazers in this area. It's sad that Google purchased them, I think. It is. And if you think of the wearables they used to do, they used to give you a little hanging hook. So the wearable you had. So this is an example of, of people in the medical trade who often you can't wear a watch because you've got to be bare above the uh, above the elbow because you're washing your hands and it's patient contact. You may still want to track your activity though. And those Google Fitbits that you could hang on, bras for example, underneath your scrubs and things like that, people could continue to track their fitness and see how many hours they were standing and all that kind of stuff. That's actually quite important for the workplace for people to know when they need to take care of themselves as well as their patients. So I think this is actually quite bad that they're sort of pushing everybody down this one road where a watch is, is the only thing or a ring is the only thing. Not everybody can wear a watch or ring all the time. So it, it just limits people's choice. And I think that's bad. Yeah, I agree. Like I say, it's it's bad. And the fact people have come back in the new year and loads of them are going to get laid off is horrible, isn't it? Speaking it of is. which, AI, AI, Humane, who make the AI pin, so they've announced pre, pre-orders already, but actually they're laying off about what they say, 4%, so 10 people give or take, are being laid off from Humane, which does not bode well for pre-orders. Are pre-orders way down on what they thought? I mean, it's not landed well in the press and it's not a surprise, but again, shame they're laying people off already, but does not bode well for the future. They say they're restructuring and they're not calling it a layoff, but if you've got 4% of your business going at the same time, that sounds like a layoff. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, half a percent of Google employees is significantly more than 4% of Humane, isn't it? And I feel bad for all these people. I presume there's talented developers and, and, and everybody that's part of these layoffs. It's very sad when people are trying to build products and this is the next wave of things. But underpinning all this is the reason Apple is asking people to move around. I think the AI LLM revolution is sort of really coming home to bite. And do you need all those developers? The hotness isn't the wearable. The hotness isn't the humane pin. The hotness isn't particularly serious as it stands at the moment. And the story is that Apple has asked some of its San Diego team to move to Texas or presumably leave the company. I don't think that's very attractive either. Yeah, and I wonder why they're the Siri team's all going to be together. And this is the quality control team. So they listen to the recordings. If you opt in to share your recordings with Apple, why do they all need to be in one building? Um, it seems very bizarre to me um, how they're doing all this. And it seems a bit pre-pandemic like attitudes, but a lot of companies are going that way as we've discussed before. Also, I think Texas is subject to this, the new anti-abortion laws that are present in America. And I got to think if you've got no reason to move to those states, you probably wouldn't choose to do so. If you're going from very liberal California and San Diego to Texas and those increasingly restrictive laws, I'm not passing comments on positives or negatives, increasingly restrictive, I think is fair. That's potentially challenging for people. Yeah, it's another factor in the equation, isn't it? But it it just seems odd behaviour from a company that provide all these mobile devices so you can work anywhere. So very bizarre. Very bizarre. Moving on, that's it for layoffs for the moment, although the way we've been reporting them, I think we're going to have them every week at this stage. We're going to stick with AI, though, and OpenAI, which we've spoken repeatedly of, um, and we've got another product vaguely featuring them later on uh, in the main show. Um, have deleted one of their conditions in their contract. So previous to this, OpenAI had a ban on using ChatGPT for military and warfare purposes. Well, apparently now you can. Do you reckon they've uh, signed a deal with somebody? I found this odd that this was in there and that they thought that, you know, they'd obviously thought about this ahead of time, but it's odd now that they've changed it. Apparently they've restructured some of their, their agreements. Maybe it's where they've got a new board. You can see this happening now. 
new board members come and go, oh, look, if we're going to grow this business, we need to you know, go after this segment of the market. Let's go. And therefore, we need to change our policy. So interesting to come around now when it's military and warfare. And obviously, there's a lot happening in that part, that sort of sector at the moment with everything in the world as it is. Oh, so that's that's a horrifying thing. I mean, as you read through the article on the Intercept, you know, they they point out there is a distinct difference between their policies, the one before and the current one. The former clearly outlines that weapons development and military and warfare is disallowed, while the latter emphasizes flexibility and compliance with the law. Compliance with the law is not something you want to walk away from, really. No, but no, you well, you don't do. You've got to be compliant, but. It's just interesting how they're tweaking their business model. I reckon that there's going to be an announcement at some point in the near future. You know, OpenAI is partnered with Insert Military here, and we're going to do wonderful things to protect humanity. You can see it now. Yeah, exactly. And let's face it, uh, an AI-type system is probably involved with targeting missiles and things like that. Almost certainly, why wouldn't it be? You can understand with them. Studying satellite imagery to work out where people are moving their tanks to or their troops. Or Yeah, I don't know. I've never never been in a military force, but you can see it now. It'll be something like that. Yeah. So that's horrifying. (laughs) I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so that's a depressing story. And we've got swiftly another depressing story about a company we don't talk about all that much on this podcast, actually, and that's eBay. Uh, eBay aren't in the news that much. I kind of forget that eBay's a thing. Um, occasionally, one of my children goes on there to find weird things they were, they're, they're interested in. But I, I read this article earlier. Um, you found it. I just couldn't believe it. So eBay are going to have to pay $3 million in a very strange, what they call bizarre cyber-stalking campaign, which dates back to um, employees back in 2019 um intimidating a, a married couple that, that did a newsletter basically around eBay and, and they were critical of eBay for, for various things. And this includes people like their security director and the company's former global resilience, director of global resili- resiliency, apologies, I can't say that word. They were sentenced to prison back in 22 and now Google will have to pick up this fine. But it's amazing that such senior people went to intimidate a couple who wrote a newsletter criticized how ebay did things what a way to go it's just it's just such a strange story that i i I don't know what's probably worse here we are four nearly five years later and it's only just now the fines happened and it's been processed but just a horrible circumstance of events i think it really is i mean the headline is bad enough ebay will pay three million dollars over a bizarre cyber stalking campaign but then the subheading in 2019 a group of seven former ebay employees sent live insects and a bloody pig mask to the publishers of a newsletter I mean, what? What, what? How does this make sense? And then the judge's ruling itself in 2021, the company engaged in a campaign to intimidate, threaten to kill, torture, terrorize, stalk, and ultimately silence them, the judge ruled. This is horrific behavior from, like you say, very senior members of quite a big company. Uh, it's awful. And it's, that's not the worst of it. They went to the employee, the employees visited the couple's home and to conduct the surveillance, and that's when they put things through the letterbox. They also included a funeral wreath and a book about getting through the death of a spouse. What a horrible thing to do. I just find the whole story bizarre. Um, Yeah, just a very strange way of a company or some rogue individuals, you know, treating anything to do with a big corporate company. Very strange. Yeah, it's, it's not a great one. 
Speaking of things that aren't great, uh, and we're, we're going to revisit Apple here because we do try to maintain a critical eye. It's not just eBay and Microsoft and OpenAI either in the firing line of our, of our hungry news eyes. Uh, actually, Apple are, are facing it slightly this time as well. So this is a crack in AirDrop. So Apple has always tried to publicize how secure AirDrop is. Certainly, it's been subject to problems in the past. I know there was a bit of a wave of people getting unwanted images uh, on tubes and things like that from strangers. If they had their AirDrop open, they might receive uh, pictures of people's genitalia and such like when they were traveling on tubes unexpectedly and they wouldn't know who that was in the carriage well apparently the chinese government were aware of a crack in airdrop they don't like airdrop very much because it's been it's been used to sort of pass information around that all information in china has to be subject to the government the government want to be aware of where it's coming from where it's going to and it seems that chinese citizens are quite happy with that generally that they're used to their internet traffic being monitored and they go on but the government wants it all to be traceable so the fact that this has been open since 2019 apparently this airdrop crack where you are able to work out based on a, a hash table of who's sending what to whom based on the cell area at that point the chinese government are happy with apple haven't patched it but I wonder if Apple want to patch it, given that the Chinese government are happy with it. It's kind of a, an interesting sort of chicken and egg situation. Yeah, so Apple were notified about this circa two years ago when they're developing iOS 16. We're obviously on 17 now. 18's probably being developed as we'd speak. They haven't fixed it. And you can see the sender and the receiver's phone number and Apple ID. So not fantastic. And like you say, this was used in China, say, to arrange protests and things. If the government want to find out who's going to be attending, they've literally got a list of of participants so not fantastic i can't believe this hasn't been patched i mean the argument the company would make is you need to maintain compatibility with older versions of ios of course you would but this is not security conscious apple this is this is the kind of stuff as to why john stewart left you know uh, the, the the show that he had on apple tv this is the kind of stuff that we were talking about with robert de niro more on robert de niro later not being able to allowed to make a speech this is actually slightly concerning I uh, definitely agree. It is concerning, but surely, though, if you want to maintain um, compatibility with older versions, you back patch it. They still update 15 and 16. They could release a patch for all of it and go, look, if you're going to use AirDrop, everybody needs to update. It's going to be retired in this version. Send the message out there. So very bizarre behavior, if I'm honest. It is. Uh, yeah, so not good enough, Apple. Moving swiftly along, Microsoft, as we've reported on recently, has become completely obsessed with AI. I mean, let's face it, they're fundamentally funding OpenAI, as we talked about in those various news stories, and they're even putting a co-pilot button on the keyboard of future versions of, the, I think it's a Surface, because they don't make keyboards anymore, so it must be Surface laptops and things like that. New button, woo. But now Notepad is going to get an OpenAI as part of the OpenAI obsession. Yeah, this is your Microsoft sprinkling AI everywhere and they're looking at doing a co-writer piece of functionality, which is odd to have in Notepad, a very basic text editor, but they've done away with WordPad. Therefore, it makes sense that it's in Notepad. Yeah, it's just Microsoft doing Microsoft. They should just bought OpenAI shortly at this point. I just, I find it bizarre that they're not doing that in-house. You know, if it's so pivotal to your, you know, that technology is so pivotal to your strategy, can you afford for it not to be yours as demonstrated by the recent sacking and then rehiring of their CEO. So it's, it's strange, isn't it, that they're carrying on with this, but I guess they're going to put it everywhere. It's obviously working for them. Briefly last week, they, Microsoft became the most valuable company on the planet overtaking Apple. So I think the markets are obsessed with AI at the moment. AI and in inverted commas, obviously. We're, we've, we've tried to detail what we mean by AI, large language module, models and things like that in the, in the past. So 
I'm not surprised they're leaning into it. They've really found a point of differentiation on this. And, it, you know, you, I know, I personally have found it quite interesting that they're building the, like, these things into the product. You even went to a conference about it in London. You know, so if you're entertained with it, with all the skepticism you have, and the market's heavily buying into this as the next thing for many IT companies, you can kind of see their sort of attraction, can't you? You can. Uh, I'm interested, but I think it's still got some way to go. Um, but speaking of which, Samsung Galaxy devices in March are going to have Copilot integration as well. Copilot's what Microsoft call it, calls its AI. So it's interesting they're starting to reach out now to third parties. And I'm sure Samsung you know, PCs will have the uh, Copilot button on them as well. So it, it is interesting how Microsoft are going about it. They're obviously bringing everybody on, on the journey with them. I, I think we this year will be... An interesting year for AI. Last year, it feels like the formation year. Everybody's announced something, apart from Apple. And then um, this year feels like the progression of that. And I guess it will start to mature over the next couple of years. Well, let's just hope it gets more accurate. I mean, we're going to talk about a product later on that has a variant of this. They call a LAM model rather than a, a large language model. It's a large action model, I think they call it, which which... The, the ability to sort of look sideways and verify what it is you're talking about, through, say through a SQL database or something else, does add a little more provenance to these things. And I think we've hinted at it before with Apple talking to the New York Times that this is what the predicted next word is, but actually you've got a canonical news source in this database or in this lookup or some human-checked piece of information over there. And that helps, I think. But again, we're still up to that verify point of these models. It's very early days. Yeah, it is early days. As we just mentioned, Samsung Galaxy phones, you're soon going to be able to use them, like I'm doing now with my iPhone, as a webcam for Teams, which sounds like a great great bit of functionality. If continuity cameras is good, even though we've struggled with it, it feels like Microsoft's doing the same thing with Android devices. I don't get why it's limited to just Galaxy, but maybe that's where they're starting. And then it will maybe go to other brands, I would have thought. Microsoft and Samsung have worked quite closely together in the past. I think the mobile versions, Android versions of Office have been featured for free on Samsung phones before now. There's been cloud space, I think, offered for Samsung devices that if you've bought particular models of the Ultra or you know various products within the lineup. So I guess they're a good partner. Let's face it, Microsoft aren't the best at making their own mobile devices when it comes to phones and tablets and things like that. Samsung are very good at this kind of stuff. So I think it's a logical you know collaboration for them to have. Yeah, completely agree. It it does make sense, and they should be doing stuff with partners and not doing everything first party. So, again, interesting to see where this, that one goes. The next news item, though, is probably my most favourite news item. It's your favourite news item. So this is Amazon trying to fix content casting with an open standard. Uh, this baffles me entirely. How many streaming standards do we need from device to television? That's why I like this one. So it's why called you- matter casting because I think. This would be great if Matter actually works and all our devices have one standard. I struggle at work with my iPad. I'm sat in a boardroom. I can't project to the TV because it wants Microsoft's Miracast and it doesn't do AirPlay. So if there was a universal standard that you fold AirPlay, Miracast and Mattercast all into one, which appears to be what they're doing, 10 years from now, it would be like the HDMI or what was VGA connectivity of boardrooms. So this one I'm interested in. I barely use this technology at home at all because I generally have Apple TVs on my TVs. But to use this in other places will be great. Interesting, this is launching just as Apple have done the announcement, I think about six months ago with LG to say hotel rooms will now work with AirPlay for your Apple devices. 
but it feels like this would have been the better solution. It doesn't matter whether you're Android or iOS, it doesn't matter whether you're an LG TV or a Samsung TV, you can use Mattercast on it. It would be great to see this. It would be great to see, but Matter doesn't work. And moving swiftly along, my time in America shows me that everybody is already settled on Google Cast as the streaming thing. So every hotel room I went in Canada or America, or actually a couple in the UK recently, in London, have all been Google Cast. So, you know, I think it's done. I will quickly point you to xkcd.com issued 927, talking about standards, which I've put in the show notes. For anyone who is not familiar, this is what happens when another standard is introduced. Uh, even though it might make sense that everybody's going to settle on one standard, there's always another one. XKCD does this much better than I do, uh, but it's a mandatory post when people start talking about standards as far as I'm concerned. Chris is frantically clicking on the camera, so I will go away and I will start clicking on the next story, which is just a very simple thing to say that the SEC's uh, X slash Twitter account was hacked to post fake approval of a particular Bitcoin cryptocurrency variant. So I think the SEC needs to sort out their security. Yeah, this is not a good look for the SEC, is it? If no, you would expect hijacked like how, how do you how do you come away from this looking good i don't think you do i mean the security and exchange commission should be a reputable b have a decent password on their account or c is this just a consequence of twitter's increasingly poor security approach you know verification of things i don't know uh, very bizarre and how have they not got mfa turned on and all, all the obvious things just how this was allowed to happen is bonkers. No, I, I mean, and it's it, the problem is there are credulous, might not be the right word, impressionable people who will believe what is posted on all these things. People have lost large amounts of money in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency scams. It's not a real money, folks. You know, you've got to pay attention when you invest in these kinds of things. And maybe at some point in the future, it will look less like a Ponzi scheme to me. But so far, every cryptocurrency looks like a Ponzi scheme to me. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I haven't got any cryptocurrency, I must say. It's just a world I never really understood. And I probably should know more about it, but I'm happy not knowing at the moment. Yeah, I think it's something to avoid. And if I do remember, you remind me, we'll post a link to... Anyway, there's a very good episode of this thing that might come to me before the end of the podcast, where they actually go through cryptocurrencies and the whole Sam Altman freed scandal and the stock exchange FTX that he was trying to run, plus a cryptocurrency, plus a bank based on cryptocurrencies that sort of breaks all down very well of what cryptocurrencies are, how they're held together, and why they are basically just a giant scam. So hopefully that will strike me at some point as the podcast goes on, I'll be able to link to it. Okay. And I did, I think I had it as my thing of the week a while ago, was the book about Sam Altman Freed and just, and this is why I don't like cryptocurrency, just the sheer amount of money he had for a short period of time and then obviously lost it all the way it was all structured and it all just blew up basically and obviously he's now going to prison so i have remembered and it's john oliver is the comedian i'm thinking of ah and that name does ring a bell he is excellent and he talks about it really well and it's a very well researched show actually so i will post a link to that in the show notes too what's our next story our next story is OpenAI again and they're saying it's impossible to create useful AI models without copyrighted material. I think it's quite a good article, this. And I think they're possibly right. But surely they need to come up with a model that allows them to pay for the fair use of said copyrighted materials. Um, because there's going to be a lot of content on the internet that is copyrighted. And if you're going to build your model on that, you need a mechanism, surely, that makes that financially viable for everybody. Um, and 
I think we touched on this last week. That's what Apple's trying to do from this, what we've heard. They're trying to pay news organisations to use their material so that this isn't a problem. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out with OpenAI, but I'm not sure they've got a solution to it. Uh, yeah, I think if a human being did this and uh, stole a bunch of books from a bookshop to, to get their degree, they'd be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. This is effectively that, that you're making use of those things which are behind paywalls or, you know, uh, some of them are in the public domain, but copyrighted belong to an, op- an organization. And they're just saying, well, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And that seems to be fine. And that doesn't sit well with me. The, look at the amount of money Microsoft has put into OpenAI. Look at what Apple are doing, trying to build their own version of this with, with verification and by paying however much per, per article. There must be a model in which it's legal the people who originally wrote the content receive recognition for it. Let's face it, the whole Screen Actors Guild and Actors Strike, Scriptwriters Strike, was based on AI models potentially replacing voice, characters, actors, you know, background, script writing, all that kind of stuff as well. That's been trained on their output for years. You could take every film Robert Downey Jr.'s been in and create an AI model of them. They did in a couple of the Marvel films. Is that right that they can perpetually use that going forward? James Earl Jones' voice as Darth Vader, he has signed off on allowing an AI to use his voice from now on. That's fine. The artist has given the agreement that it doesn't actually need to be in the films because he's going to be dead soon. He's an old man who's, you know, who's, who's had a fantastic career and has a very distinctive voice. But it should be down to the person to give permission for their content to be used or the organization that owns that content to allow it to be used. I don't think it's right just to say, sorry, too hard. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Sorry, we just took it because there's no other way of doing it. I'm with you. I want to see how this one goes. Um, And I do agree. I don't, I think it would be impossible, but there's got to be a better way of making this work. We took it because we could. Bad. Agreed. Should we move on to cars? Let's talk about cars for a little bit, because I'm beginning to think occasionally we need a dedicated car section, but I'm not doing the car door closing sound effect like ATP do. You could do the start of an electric engine. There's not much to hear when that happens. I I do find it really weird when some electric cars go by and they put out a noise. Have you come across those? Yeah, I've seen a couple. Not many. Mine doesn't, and most people's at work don't. So when it does happen, I'm like, what's that? That's a bit odd. I'd rather not have the noise. Surely you notice a two-ton big blob coming towards you, because you should look before you cross the road. So that's my personal view. I'm kind of with you. Lots of people don't look walking out in front of petrol or diesel vehicles. Mine makes a funny noise when I put it in reverse. It sounds like a flying saucer, or some variant of a flying saucer. It's quite really quite a weird noise that it makes. But when it's driving along, it doesn't make a noise. No, mine neither. Mine does internally. Um, it's got some hand Zimmer sound effects internally. Really? They're quite cool. I think Ford EVs will do that. You can program in how aggressive you want the engine noise to be on the inside. I want it to be very quiet. I don't want to hear anything except the radio or the podcast I'm listening to. I thought that, but actually sports mode's quite satisfying when you when you give it the beans. Give it the beans. Uh, this is a story about Google Chrome coming to your your car. So this, I actually feel I'm very against Google Chrome for lots of reasons that we've talked about before, particularly around manifest and advertising on the desktop. But the underlying underpinnings of what make, goes into car entertainment systems is Android Automotive. Android Automotive seems to do the right thing. You can choose whether you want to mirror your phone on there. You can have CarPlay on there. And now they're just giving you a freer browser choice on there as well. I think they should bring Firefox to it as well. But I think this is okay that Polestar have said, yep, we're going to put this onto our cars. They've already got Android Automotive. They're very open about it. But I've also said within this article, actually, that they'll continue to support CarPlay as well. I think this is fine. 
I do and I don't. Why do I need a browser in my car? I'm, I'm not against Google. I'm just, why do, I, why do I need a browser? Because how many people are actually using all the all the tech that's in their dashboard? I literally use mine just to mirror my phone and there's a lot of wasted tech there. Why do I need a native app to browse the internet? I could, why wouldn't I just pick up my phone that's got my bookmarks on it, all my browsing history, my credit cards? I'm just not sure I'd then want to put my credit cards into my car to then make a purchase. If, you know, if I was going on Amazon or whatever it may be, I just find it all bizarre. I just, I don't know. Surely you just use your phone that's all set up and good to go. That's that's my view. So how big is the main screen in your car? Oh, it's huge. It's like 14, 15 inches. Right. So you've got a big screen. You haven't travelled away on long trips charging yet, have you? No, but I've usually got an iPad with me with a cellular on it and it's got a full keyboard, nice comfy keyboard and a mouse and a touchscreen. Whereas my f- car's got a jog dial and a touchscreen. How am I going to... I don't know. I just don't think it'd be a nice experience, and it's not very ergonomic. It's in the middle. You're gonna, what you're gonna be reaching over doing that. I just, I just don't think well, I'd want to do it. Correct. So, Tell for example, so for example, um, my Tesla has built-in Netflix, YouTube, and these days Disney Plus. But what if I want to watch ITVX on there while I'm charging for, on a very slow charger for two hours so on the free cellular connection in the car? I could connect to ITVX's website and I could play it directly on the web browser in my car, and my passenger can watch it as well. Yeah, I guess. I just don't do those sorts of trips. I guess I'm largely in my car on my own. And if I'm somewhere with the family, we don't, I don't know. We've just never done that, I guess. We've never had to stop and fill up like that. We'd stop in my wife's car, which is fossil fueled. And therefore, it's a quick top it up and then, you know, go and grab a Starbucks or, or other preferred coffee brand here. So I have used it. I mean, let's face it, I don't charge for that long in the Tesla, a supercharger. I don't, the longest I've spent is 40 minutes, and I think I had 8% in the battery and had to go up to 100%. So that was a decent charging stop. It goes up to 80% really quickly, but if you want to go over that, because you're going on a ferry, for example, it takes a bit longer to do the top up even on that. So if you are watching something on an unsupported service and you're sat in the car for a period of time, because it's cold outside and you don't want to go for a wander and it's not supported on the app, I think this gives people choice, and I don't think that's a bad thing to have it. Yeah, okay. Maybe I can go along with your view of the world, but I'm still not sure. I need to be more convinced. I am amazed that Apple haven't allowed Apple TV through CarPlay to work. For You know, you'd have thought they'd have done that by now. Yeah, it's a serious problem for these things. My app of the week last week, uh, ZapMaps, is something that should be built into car, uh, EVs. Show me the nearest decent charging spot now This on these parameters is something that should just be built into EVs or you should be able to install it as a consumer. Because... My impression, and we're going to talk about Tesla and Hertz in a minute, my impression of a lot of in-car entertainment stuff is it's not as good as Tesla's in going, oh, you're on a two-hour, you're on a 10-hour trip, you need to stop here, here, and here, and charge for this long, for this period of time, you know, and there's this many people at a charging point when you get there. I don't think your car is as clever as that to go, I'm on a 10-hour trip, you've got to make four stops, this stop is 15 minutes, this stop is an hour, this stop is 20 minutes. Tesla's quite good at that because it knows where the supercharger is, but yours isn't, to my knowledge, as clever as that. I've never tried it. The map app's going to be quite good, but I've never really used it. I just use the Apple map. So I, it probably isn't as good. I think they have something, but it's probably nowhere near as advanced. So all my review, all the reviews I've watched, including things like Hyundai Onyx, I'm not picking on BMW here, are like this. They don't take into account properly things like hills for how quickly you know, your battery's going to go down based on your climbing mountains going through Scotland, and then you're coming back down them on the other side. So they're not as good. So a lot of EV owners would like to install things like a better route planner or ZapMap, which actually interface with your car and have a better algorithm for working out what charges are free around you. So the ability to install that kind of stuff, I think, is really important. 
GM, who we've talked about before, really don't want you doing this. Tesla don't really want you doing this. But that Polestar and Volvo that use the Google thing, you can install apps like a better route planner and actually use that instead of the map that comes with it. And again, that's consumer choice in the same way the browser is. And that's good for a car that you bought. <laughs> you know, I think it's only fair to give you that. No, agreed. I do agree with consumer choice, even though I was against Chrome in the car. But no, you're, you're right. Shall we move on to Hertz? Let's move on to Hertz. And this is a very simple and small and slightly sad story for me. That the Hertz bought an awful lot of Tesla Model 3s. When they're looking to replace them, they're not going to replace them with EVs and they want rid of the EVs from their network, primarily because the A, consumers don't really want them because they don't understand how to charge them, and B, they're very expensive to repair. And I kind of get that. You know, it's quite bespoke. Teslas have not been in huge quantities up to this point. The same with Polestars. I guess if somebody reverses into something in a hire car and smashes a bumper, it's harder to get one for a te- for you know, whatever Tesla they've hired than it is for a Ford Focus. Yeah, I think this one's interesting. I think it's super interesting because it does feel like EVs have had their moment. And I think they're still incredibly popular. But actually, there's still a lot of concern around it and a lot of people are still just going for a regular petrol car because I think they are put off by the by all the costs and the not understanding it and the concerns about charging it and, and all of that. Even though people stop for an hour and have a coffee, they think stopping for an hour and charging your battery whilst you have a coffee is a massive negative. So it is a, it's a very strange world at the moment, I think. And I think we've got a bit longer to go, but EVs are still relatively new, but there does seem to be this anti-EV piece and I think it will settle but I think we just got to go through the motions uh, I'm kind of with you there Hertz are sort of hitting the pain for this I think early EVs were really bad your BMW i3s and your Nissan Leafs were not great cars I think Tesla's BMWs and Polestars are far better vehicles for a rental fleet than these early EVs because they can go further they're better charging networks software's better as we've been discussing so and I've actually rented an EV from Hertz as I talked about when I was in California and it was perfectly fine and the benefit for me was they said oh you don't need to return it full of gas you know that's quite a big deal when you rent a car a lot of the time because you're looking for that place around the airport to top it back up and they will go out and they will look and if it's a one millimeter underneath the the full arrow when you bring it back to the rental company they will charge you through the nose for that whereas i was just able to return it and they charge it back up again i think there is a lot of myths around evs of course i'm a convert because i've been driving one for a couple of years now i understand people's skepticism my neighbors around me are like how much does it cost you to charge overnight oh why don't they say it only costs seven pounds to fill it up you know that kind of stuff i think is out there and there's a lot of myths and there's problems with them as well it's not it's not a completely happy uh, bouncy place full of flowers and things there's issues with evs too but uh, i don't think it's quite as bad as people make out yep i agree with everything that you've said good do you want to tell us about the rabbit r1 ai powered gadget yeah, so I quite enjoyed this. Um, I watched the video. It reminded me of Humane doing their AI pin where you've got the CEO quite monotonely introducing their device for 20-odd minutes. I thought he did quite a good job of introducing it. It needed a harsh edit, um, and it could have done with some other people in it just to, you know, have different sections done by different people. I think because sometimes the the co-founder or the CEO isn't always the most passionate about the product or the great person at marketing it. So it would have been good to have a bit more um, diversity in that. But um, basically this is, it's called the Rabbit R1. It's a small device. It looks a lot like a Playdate. I think it was engineered by the same team, Teenage Engineering, who've done the hardware design. Fantastic. So it's a very small device. It's got a screen that, looks at, that you look at. It's got a camera that you can flip to face you flip off or flip to face the back and it's designed to be kind of like the ai pin 
but a screen powered device where you can use it to, you know, look things up, use AI, link it to Spotify, link it to other services that you have. So you can ask it questions and go, you know, what football has scored the winning goal of the 1998 Euro Cup final? And it will tell you the answer, I'm guessing. I have no idea who that is, by the way, or what the teams were. Um, but you can use it for other things like, you know, play me some music, play me some more songs from the album I'm just listening to and all, all those kinds of things. Um, and it looks great. And it's $200 to buy it. So it's not a big barrier to entry. No monthly costs. It does make you wonder what their ongoing business model will be. Um, whereas Humane's $700 plus $50 a month to maintain it. Um, again, all AI powered, but no screen on the Humane one. So it's a very similar view of the AI world to Humane, but implemented very differently with the screen. And it's using the large action model. I was just trying to remember the acronym um, that you mentioned earlier. And they reckon they're doing it all a lot quicker and a lot more efficient. I think this is still where AI is in its infancy of which, you know, and it'll probably be obvious five years from now, which was the obvious way to do these large language models and actions. And I think we're in that infancy where everybody's trying different things. And it's great to see them coming in a different way. They've productized it. It looks a nice product. But what did you think? I thought this was great, actually. I'm with you. I thought the, the presentation could have used a bit more pizzazz. I think if you skip to about 11 minutes when he does the Spotify demo of what you can do with it, about it, we're not storing your credentials, it all goes to the Spotify account, you've got to log in, you do this, it's not stored by us, blah, blah. That's all helpful to say where that's going. That was a what's good actually, privacy piece, wasn't it? Good privacy piece. There is what's happening to your data because it's going to, you know, where, wherever the model goes and all the rest of it, but that's fine. They're $200, like you say. I think it's lovely hardware. It's got a screen, which is good. If you shake it, you don't need to speak to it. You get a keyboard up as well. I thought that was quite a nice feature, although typing on that little screen might be problematic. I think it's a really nice device and it's only $200 without an ongoing cost. So that's terrific. They sold out all the pre-orders already, apparently, which is probably very different to Humane's model, I got to say. $200, it's worth a punt, I would say, for a lot of people. So this is an interesting little device. I don't think it's the answer, but I think it's closer to what people expect from a device like this, something you can speak to, give me answers. I thought the animations on it were charming as well. When you ask it to play music, the little rabbit and the app store, their app store equivalent is called the rabbit hole, which you also think is a fantastic little bit of design. You know, the rabbit, look, he puts headphones on and he shakes his head in time with the music. And I just like quirky little touches like this. This is a far more compelling gadget for me, even though my skepticism about AI, than the humane pen. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is super interesting. It's a lot more accessible, whereas I think Humane's trying to replace a device like your phone and people will be very skeptical of doing that. Whereas I think something like what Rabbit are doing is a great way if you want to go and play with it and have a companion device. You can put it on your Wi-Fi if you just want to use it around the house. You can stick a SIM card in it if you want to try it out and about. I just think it's super cool. I think it's a great way of doing it and people need to build up their comfort if you are going to convince people they don't need to have their phone with them the whole time. Yeah, I'm curious to see where this goes. I mean, the thing I really like about this, and it kind of undersells it a bit at the beginning, is that all the phones are what they are. And we've talked almost every week on this about being locked into the Play Store, locked into the Apple, the, 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 the iPhone Store, the iOS Store. This isn't that. It's making use of websites and those kinds of logins to make use of those apps. So that's quite interesting, actually. If it can do that seamlessly while maintaining your security and not selling on too much of your data for a price like this, that becomes quite an interesting device. And this is, like you say, version 0.1 of these kinds of things. They're presumably only get better, better than this. If I was Apple or I was Google or I was Microsoft, I'd be looking at this and going, that's quite a compelling little device. If it can do those kinds of things like 
you arrive at a car parking thing and you say, pay for my parking for me, please. It knows where you are, how long you're going to park for, what your vehicle registration is, and fill all that kind of stuff in for you. That's super cool. Yeah, I think it is super cool. And do you know what? In the UK, the device delivers £171. It's not that bad. As as fun tech gizmos go, that will probably be given up in six months and replaced with something else. You could, you could do worse, I think. But if you were into AI and wanted to understand more around it, it's a good place to start. It's a great place to start. Moving on, let's do two quick stories from CES about charging stuff. One of the big stories that came out of CES, CIES was Qi 2. So we talked about this before. This is a standard that Apple's in as well. It's basically the MagSafe standard for phones and things like that. It will deliver 15 watts, I want to say, of rapid wireless charging uh, to a stand or something like that. And this will be in common with Android devices and other devices that want to support the Qi 2 standard. Apple are in, others are in, and now you can actually go out and after CES and buy some devices with Qi 2. And these stands actually look quite nice, some of them from Suteki. Yeah, I love, I never know how to say a name, I love their products. I think they do some really nice looking products, very Apple-esque. I use MagSafe everywhere for everything. I've got my children on it my wife's on it we've got some magsafe pucks around the house it's a fantastic standard big big advocate of it and it's great it's now a standard for others i'd wish my car had it because my phone does slide around on the big plate that it's got and therefore it'll come off the charge so now it's great great to see people adopt it quickly and i'm glad that magsafe isn't just an apple standard yeah, it's pretty cool. And so it's seventy nine ninety nine for a two-in-one stand. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that charges for that, but the three-in-one will charge your headphones, your fo- your watch, and your phone all in one go. It's quite pricey, but that's actually, it's a neat little device. Have a look at the screenshots. So that was the first story. And then the second story is about a much bigger charging thing. So we've recommended Anchor products on this podcast before for batteries for when you're out and about, but the flagship power station is big enough to charge a Tesla. That's quite a thing, isn't it? Yeah, I was impressed with this. I was looking at it going, is that all I need then? Rather than pulling up to stop, I could just take one of those in the boot of my car. This looks quite cool. It's £4,000 or $4,000, should I say, starting price. But actually looked looked like a great solution if you were paranoid or you lived in somewhere with a patchy battery. A patchy battery, patchy... Uh, electricity electricity forgive me i think it looks really good and anchor do make some fantastic well-made products so yeah really cool stuff like this is really good though if you have solar panels in your house and you plug one of these in the corner somewhere you've effectively effectively got a generator haven't you for for quite a lot of your house you probably need to mess around with transformers and things like that to be able to take power from this but this gives you a huge amount of backup power just in case you know from smartphones to your ev that's quite a range of things you could potentially run run from one of these things yeah it's a lot of money but you know as you know brownouts are more likely to happen across the world with you know changing climate and all the rest of it devices like this start to become quite interesting for more of us i think yeah completely agree with you so it looks a cool device and the cost of these things will come down over time so it will become more accessible as as we move through through the it years, will. I think, and that you can see more people having this, I think. You will. So that was a massive news section. Like we say, that we've got a glut of news following the quiet uh, Christmas period. And uh, anything else, or did we miss something? No, I think that will do us for, to, for today. Um, but it does feel like companies are back in January with a force. So um, onwards to media then. So first up, we've got Killers of the Flower Moon on Apple TV+. And I think you've watched this and I've started it. It is two hours and 40 minutes long, give or take, if memory serves. So I've started it. I'm treating it like a TV series. I will watch it in chunks. Um, when I watched the intro, I wasn't sure. And then once it started getting going, actually, I was getting quite enthralled by it. What was your take as you've seen the whole thing? 
It's two hours and 40 minutes, but it feels an awful lot. Does it need a harsh edit? Is it a good story? Is it compelling? Don't spoil so, it. I'm try- I will try not to spoil it. In some senses, it's hard to spoil it because it's a true story. Yeah, but and, I don't know what the true story is. That's fair. Okay, so I'll, I'll try. Uh, I'm going to. I've tried to get my thoughts into some sort of order on this. It's a very, very long film. It's too long. It needs a very savage edit. It's an excellent cast, particularly Leonardo DiCaprio, the lady that plays his wife, whose name has temporarily escaped my my brain, but she is fantastic. Uh, one of the first times the Osage language has been spoken anywhere ever, really, outside of the Osage community. Quite a lot of the film they make use of that language, and it is fantastic. I must say to have that sort of cultural impact for 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 a film like this so i think all the native american actors that are within it do a phenomenal job leo does an amazing job and so does robert de niro it's quite a tough watch in some sense Uh, it is a true story based on some absolutely horrendous events featuring other horrendous events that happened in american history as well so while this was going on and you can go and you can read the book this is based on they mentioned the Tulsa massacre as well, which is another awful thing where basically the city of Tulsa was an independent state, state with African-Americans who were actually making a real go of being left to their own devices and actually without a lot of white cultural interference, for want of a better thing. And basically the Ku Klux Klan took guns and walked through the city and just massacred a bunch of people. It's it's an awful historical thing that America has tried to paper over, featured in the Watchmen TV series a, a few years back as well. And that's mentioned as part of the film. So there are not only featuring some acts of atrocity that were perpetrated against Native Americans within this particular country to get their oil rights, they're featuring other things that were going along at the same sort of time period and how awful that sort of oppression has been for those. It's, it, it feels wrong to call minorities, but people you know from other communities within there. So I think it's a very worthy film, well acted. The soundtrack of sort of the continuous pounding beats as the story is beginning to move along is quite a compelling plot device It moves along. It's quite well shot, and now I've run out of positive things to say. It it is too long. I don't like the ending at all. I felt it did a disservice to the rest of the film. I'm desperately trying not to spoil anything, as I say here. I'm glad I watched it. I would not watch it again. It's about a 5 out of 10, but I don't want to undermine the powerful message and story that's in there, because I think it's really important that it's told and not forgotten, and I celebrate the people peoples that are involved within the story really is that a reasonable review no i think that's fair it's probably what i expected i'm disappointed a bit with things lately i think tv shows films are all suffering from the same thing of because because people aren't going to the cinema necessarily everything's built for streaming everything's just a bit too long i think i think a lot of things could be nipped and tucked a little bit and probably be more impactful so it is a shame it is so long and it could have probably done with a tighten-up or embrace it and make it into a TV series. I'm not surprised because Martin Scorsese did, I think it was The Irishman a while ago, and I remember watching that and thinking, oh my lordy, like how long is this going to go on for? And I was really disappointed because I had a stellar cast, really good director, and yet just seemed to be a very slow-progressing story. So your view of it probably is where I will end up, but I'm, I'm still keen to see it and watch it all the way through. I do love a Scorsese film, but I wish they would just be a bit more brutal with the cutting. And I think that that is the theme of this show. I think we said it about the rabbit intro. We said about Humane. We said about this. We've had Oppenheimer that was very long. I did enjoy Oppenheimer, I must say. We've got, obviously, Napoleon as well, which is also incredibly long. I just, I don't know. I think you can do a great story in two hours. And I think it's sometimes quite good to have that time constraint. I think it makes you focus. And I think 
the people just get used to it. they've got to use all the footage they've shot yeah there's a lot to be said for a good editor i mean a film we've lauded here has been the blackberry movie which isn't a very long film it manages to tell you know a decade of story effectively in that period of time now it's a very different se- sequence of events but i think having that constraint having that level of editing can make a story sharper and if you look at other scorsese films and i'd point something like gangs of new york which is only 168 minutes tells a better story in a shorter period of time than something like this which is given too much time it's funny i'm scrolling through uh, a list of his longest movies let's quickly do this gangs of new york 168 minutes the aviator 170 minutes casino 179 minutes wolf of wall street 180 minutes killers of the flower moon 206 minutes he has a movie length problem and i don't want to take anything away from scorsese he is an amazing filmmaker but that th- he just needs a better editor i think he does it amazes me you say the wolf of wall street so long because i do love that movie um I didn't think it would be that long, but it's quite fast-paced, I guess. But there's a lot of scenes in it. No, yeah, I just wish people would be a little bit tighter. Blackberry, for example, I've already gone back and watched it again because I thoroughly enjoyed it and I wanted to see it again. I thought, actually, I don't need to carve out a big chunk of my life to do this. I can easily sit down for about an hour and a half and watch it all the way through in one sitting. So what have we got next on the list then? So next up, we've got Criminal Record on Apple TV+. Plus. Is this you again? Yep, this is me again. So this is a new show that we failed to mention last week that is starring Peter Capaldi and uh, uh, I forget the name. I'm having a terrible time with actresses' names tonight. I apologise. Juno Kush, I think her name is. I'll check that before uh, the end of the line, which is British. Uh, it's always nice to see a British uh, crime procedural type thing going on. I've only watched the, watched the first episode of it so far. They dropped three, so I've still got two to catch up on, possibly three by this point. Not a bad start. Again, it's not something I want to give too much away about. Peter Capaldi plays a detective. There's another detective in it. It's a bit line of duty, sort of attempting to be. There's probably a dirty cop here somewhere. It seems like it's going to be Peter Capaldi, but it's too early in the show to say that. I'm not giving away much on the first episode. Quite well filmed, quite an interesting premise. He's always very watchable, uh, Peter Capaldi, so I've, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's given an hour to breathe. It seems like it's going to be a decent show. So it looks fantastic. The actress name that you can remember is Kush Jumbo. That's it. Cool name. I think this looks great. I do want to watch it. I might just try the trailer with my wife after this because she wants to watch uh, a series together. I thought maybe she would go for this. I don't know if it's her sort of thing, but I'm super keen to watch it. I think it looks fantastic. And I'm gutted I haven't, I just haven't found the time to watch that and Killers of a Flower Moon. And I've started the one. I don't want to start the other until I finish one because I don't like having too many things going at once. I'd just like to say I've done all my homework this week between watching Killers of the Flower Moon and actually making a start on that and finishing For All Mankind. So it was the series finale of For All Mankind uh, last Friday. This series I don't think has been as strong. I think the first two seasons of, seasons of For All Mankind were absolutely fantastic. There's something about that historical perspective that really makes it sort of stand up. The last season was a bit weaker and this one dipped a little in the middle. Don't get me wrong, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. It still tells a very compelling story, but they absolutely stuck the landing for me uh, and for all mankind. I thought it was a terrific end of season thing. It was very compelling, lots of drama, fantastic, great choices of music and has done the 10 years forward again. So we're up to 2012 for the next season of For All Mankind, which hopefully we're getting at some point. Good ending, great TV show and uh, one of the better ones on Apple TV Plus for sure. Yeah, it is good. Oh, I must find. I've got to find more time in the day to watch these things. I'm behind, but I know I want to watch them and give them my full attention. So that's still on my list. I'm about halfway through. 
What else have we got in media? So just one for me. So I did watch this with my wife. Fool Me Once on Netflix. I mentioned it last week. We started it. We finally finished it. Actually quite a compelling show. I was annoyed to begin with because you start this show and you just don't know what what's going on with anything and you like oh there's so many possible options it could be and then as as you as the show unfolds obviously it starts narrowing down what the solution to the the crime is it was actually really well done great story i thought and i actually ordered the book that goes with it it's by harlan coburn I, i've gonna have said his name right or wrong i've never read one of his novels so i'm quite looking forward to reading that so i've ordered that off the back of it but no would recommend my wife and i certainly enjoyed it, it was nice to watch the show together no, he's a good crime writer, Harlan Corbin. I've, I've read a few things of his. Um, not bad. It's te- one I might have a look out for. That's a solid recommendation from you, so I think I might consider that one, yeah. yeah we, we enjoyed it. I think it was a good show. Could have been shorter. I think that's the, the theme, isn't it? It was eight episodes. They could have probably done it in six. It could have been a film, because I think just a little bit tighter, no recaps. Um, Go and speak to Martin Scorsese. One I haven't put on our list that I just quickly want to mention is I finished The Crown, the last season of The Crown as well. Not the greatest season, it must be said, the last season. I, that was coming up as I was talking about it anyway. But again, actually, the last episode was really well done. No spoilers for that if you have been following it, and it's just a very quick thing. Good ending, fairly average series other than that. The, again, as with, you know, For All Mankind, I think the first couple of seasons of The Crown were far stronger, and the closer it's got to real events, the less... Sorry, I shouldn't say real events, they're all real events and in inverted commas but events i actually experienced and lived through is definitely weakened over time but yeah the crown yeah i think that's what i've heard that's fair the first two seasons fantastic yep should we do a little bit of games yes there's two games it's all to you it's amazing actually the last uh, three weeks of podcast our game section has been less than four minutes i think and this is going to continue that theme i've been playing call of duty modern warfare 3 big shock but in my other bits of time it's been interesting that the first steam power steam deck rival has come along so msi have announced a thing called the claw which i think was the bad guy in inspector gadget cartoons back way back when um as a, as a rival to the Steam Deck, it's quite an interesting bit of hardware made by SI, but it's actually going to run SteamOS as well, which is interesting. You know, that it's not just Steam, it's an open source um, software that they can put on there. That's quite nice for them to have that rival. I wonder if it will be as well supported as Valve's own hardware, but I think it's good they've got a bit of competition in this space and it shows there's a market for it. Uh, it definitely is good there's some competition, 100%. The Steam Deck is fantastic. I've got mine here. I was just updating it before the show. I, I'm happy to see some something else in this space. And there's um, another one as well. Is it Asus that do one? A more rugged one as well. So it's interesting to see there's quite a few coming in this space. Um, I was listening to a podcast called Remaster, all about computer games, and they were picking the game of the year. And a lot of them commented on how they played a lot on handheld devices, whether it was a lot on the Switch, because it's been a great year for Switch first-party games with various Mario games, a lot of Steam Deck games. So for some reason, you'd thought by now we'd all be playing on big screens or in immersive goggles. Um, but actually, we're all going back to handhelds. It's, it's interesting how the market's turned around a little bit. Yeah, I've read a little bit about the new Prince of Persia game, which they're describing as a Metroidvania, which is an interesting sort of mashup of gaming culture just in one sentence. But it's meant to be terrific, sort of back to the history of it. Jordan Mechner, who's the original writer of that, which I think it was an Apple II game when it came out initially, way back when, Prince of Persia. And it's meant to be an absolutely fantastic game, tailor-made for some sort of handheld device like the Steam Deck, because it's a platform game with, you know, procedurally generated levels. Fantastic. You can sit and play it forever. So I think those kinds of games are really compelling for people, be them on trains or be sitting at home instead of you know you've got two screens on there's something going on that you're not that interested in that your family might be watching and you can go and do something or your kids are playing it so i quite like the fact these things are there 
just to keep this under four minutes, the second thing we're talk- I just wanted to highlight is uh, a few shows ago, I talked about a, a sort of open source command and conquer alternative to Red Alert. Uh, now I found one about Age of Empires. So Empires Ascendant is an open source variant of, of Age of Empires from Microsoft from many, many years ago. I think it's all rebuilt using its own um, textures and tiles and things like that. But you can download the Mac, the Linux or the Windows version and crack on and play with a friend or play by yourself for uh, an Age of Empires clone. So that's pretty cool that these kinds of things exist too. I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but it's on my list. It does look kind of cool. Like looking at some of the screenshots and that it looks very Age of Empires-esque, as you say, but it looks very well done. It does. And that's it, unless you get anything else for games. Uh, I've played GT7 a lot with my son, which is nice to bond with my son. But no, I, I don't think people want to hear more about GT7. Fair play. Shall we do a main show? Let's get into it, because we've been going quite long. So we were going to just talk briefly, I think, around the post office and the Horizon IT that's been in the news a lot well, for a while now, but really has blown up in the new year. And we've got some links in there. And I've I've included one to the BBC's website who do quite a good overview of what's happened here. So this is all about an IT system um, put in in 1999 to, I guess, to manage post office and cash flow. And then evidence pointed to hundreds and hundreds of people that appeared to be defrauding the post office out of money led to postmaster sub postmasters and sub postmistresses having their lives destroyed is how how it's been reported in that some people have been financially ruined they've had to go to prison you know it, all this from an IT platform that reported that in essence the books weren't adding up but actually in reality that system that was put in did not work properly and when this all went through court it's been interesting to see how the evidence was portrayed they weren't you know ratifying that the system was correct or incorrect they just go well that's what the computer says so it's got to be right therefore you humans must be cheating the system or or be at odds and then obviously now what's come to light is actually the system was wrong and the people were right and they're now obviously trying to go back through that and it's meant that um, the lady who was CEO at the time has now lost her MBE I think she has CBE CBE, apologies. There's so many different titles you get in the New Year's Honours list. Um, and that's happened and they're obviously trying to understand exactly what's happened and, uh, and deal with all the people that have been impacted by it and acquit them, basically, because this is it's just awful, isn't it? The whole thing is, is awful. And I don't know whether, and I think this is the big one, we don't know whether Royal Mail actively knew that the system was wrong. They probably didn't to begin with, but when you've got like seven, eight hundred, nine hundred cases of people looking like they're they're defrauding the company, surely you go back and validate. Well, is the system correct before we go and prosecute these people? It seems very bizarre how it's got to this point, and we're talking over a lot of years here. This system was active, I think, up until twenty twelve. I think I read, so it ran for quite a long time. We've gone through court, we've prosecuted people, and now we've realised actually the original system, the evidence was incorrect, and we've got to undo all of that. So very strange set of circumstance here. Well, I guess the first thing to say is, apparently the system's still in use. The Horizon system is still used by the post office, which is described as robust, according to the BBC article that we've linked in in the show notes. I've got a bunch of takes on this, the first of which 
I'm going to get all of them will be bad because it's based on a sort of fairly peripheral reading of some of the links in the article. But it's worth going and reading the Substack, and Substack is a problematic platform in and of itself these days. But David Allen Greaton has written a terrific piece on the legalities of how all this came to happen, just from a legal point of view, uh, in the first link in our show notes. So I'd recommend you go and read that. Maybe it is on Substack, and we'll, 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 I'll skip over that as a subject for another day. But there's a concept in British law that machines are correct. And that comes from the policeman looking at the watch when he books you for, you were speeding, sir, and it's 3.14 on this day, is you assume, unless otherwise, that the watch is correct or the speed camera is correct. Devices are assumed to work unless proven to be defective. And that is kind of the basis for the whole court case on these things, is the system is right. Now, you and I have both written software. How many lines of code can you write before you have a bug? Not very many. One, if you're lucky. And frankly, probably not even one. So we know systems are full of bugs. And we were going to have, and we'll talk about it another day, me getting up on my soapbox and talking about open source medical software inside of devices and things like that. But this is part of this, is that our assumption that software is correct is really dangerous. And we see that increasingly with things like Boeing, with the decisions they made with their MCAS system for planes taking off and landing. So it's not surprising that bugs of this level were in a system this pervasive to UK life. Every town has at least one post office, possibly more. It was coming out of the postmaster and postmistress's account. People were remortgaging their houses because the system couldn't add up, basically. People went to jail, people committed suicide, they were accused of crimes they didn't commit. And there's another factor of British law within this, that normally a crime would have to go through the Crown Prosecution Service, and all these prosecutions would build up with sufficient evidence to do so. And when they reached a certain level, it would trigger another level of legal scrutiny. But actually, the post office was able to prosecute themselves and they had that burden of proof on their side. So that's about as much as this as I'm going to say is that the legal system was against them through this proof of it. The post office had the ability, the interest, and and the desire, it seems to, from everything that's been publicized about this to prosecute. And this is very, And software is often wrong. Because it's written by humans, and humans are often wrong. See open AI discussions we've had before. So there's a whole thing behind this, I think, that is problematic. And I'm glad that there's a certain amount of justice coming back from these people. I think there's 93 prosecutions or something like that have been overturned up to this point, which isn't all of them. You know, and there's questions being asked in, in Parliament. And David Cameron apologised for his part in this today. Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat leader, who was minister for this at this time is coming out of this looking really bad because he didn't ignore, he wouldn't meet with the postal workers who were having this problem with this system at this point. So I think there's a lot of fallout going to happen here. But fundamentally, you and I aren't surprised at IT systems have problems. But how pervasive is this in other parts of our lives as well? So I do, I do find it very interesting. Yeah, and it is bad that we take the view of the in the UK that that the system's right. You know, systems are large and complex, and they do get things wrong from time to time. We all know about this, so it's just an awful sequence of events, I think. Um, but it's just amazing that nobody asked questions of the data that they were looking at before they prosecuted so many people. And you've got to remember, this was, you know, back in '99. We all posted a lot more things back then. Like you say, there was a post office in every town. It's now a little different. There are now a lot less post offices in the UK. So it was. Like I said, it's most prevalent time. All this happened. It's just I just find the whole thing. The more you read about it, 
the crazier it all seems that, that it's gone on for so long. And Fujitsu, who who create this system, have then won lots of other government contracts as well and continue to do so. So, yeah, and the more you look, the less proud you are to be part of this country sometimes, I think, on this one. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think these miscarriages of justice are, are take far too long to come to light and, and then are problematic when they do. And, you know, the ongoing COVID inquiry within a, within Parliament at the moment will be a whole a whole ball of wax as well. But it's it's not a surprise that these massive systematic mistakes are papered over or blamed on the little guy or girl rather than, you know, the, the, the actual perpetrators of these events. Uh, you know, I don't think Fujitsu, who made the Horizon system come out of this very well, I don't think the post office do. I don't think anyone in any senior position of power, you know, can, can coat themselves with glory. My little thing about this is I'm going to go away and watch the ITVX series, I think, where, you know, and educate myself. It will be dramatised, but I think the scale of it has to be sort of seen to be believed for the amount of impact it had across the UK. Yeah, and it does go to show computers aren't always right. No, look they're at, not. Look at, the, look at the data, understand it before before this you know yeah it's just awful but the tv series is going to be very good and so we put a link in there it's on itv for anybody that wants to watch that and again almost every week we're talking about something related to a computer or an ai model or something going wrong this isn't a surprise to us but it's the scale of this and the lives that have been affected by it and i think i've told this story before but you and i starting a computer science degree is one of the first things they told us about was an ariane rocket blowing up because they had an, an integer problem 32 bit 16 bit integers between the stages and the therac uh, radiography machine that was delivering wrong doses of radiation and that's way back when when we started our degrees so yeah that was a long time ago now we're quite old christopher Quite. I think that's everything on, that we're going to discuss on Horizon IT, but um, I too will try and watch the TV show and understand a little bit more. So I've got a lot of TV to watch by the sounds of it. Next up on the list then, we're just going to briefly mention Wi-Fi 7 is now a thing. This is quite interesting. And I've, I've put a link in there that compares Wi-Fi 6, 6E and 7, because they've all kind of come out around the last three or so years, I would say. But yet we had a really long period where Wi-Fi didn't really change much. And then all of a sudden we've had three in quick succession. There's a link also to The Verge about new, new Alienware Wi-Fi 7 gaming laptops come in. I think I might have mentioned it before, but Eero now do an Eero 7, which is based upon the, the 7 standard, as well as doing the 6 and the 6E. But it is super interesting. Basically the 6 and the 6E, very similar. is like an extended version. But if you look in the table on the article I've linked to, 6 and 6E run at 9.6 gigabits Wi-Fi, whereas if you've got Wi-Fi 7, it will do up to 46 gigabits. Just insane. Like, that is some very quick Wi-Fi. Here I am thinking about running more Ethernet, and now I'm thinking maybe I just need to put Wi-Fi 7 everywhere. Obviously, it's still Wi-Fi. It's not guaranteed as much as what it is when you actually Ethernet something in. You get a lot more throughput, and it's consistent, but this is some seriously fast Wi-Fi. Um, very interesting. Nearly everything else is is more or less the same. Um, it runs on 2.4 gigahertz, which we've had for donkey's years. 5 gigahertz, which has largely been here. And now it, there's got 6 gigahertz on the 6E and the 7. And that, that's really what it is. They're, they're using these wider spectrums. I don't think our phones support it, do they? But we do support, I think, 6E, but not 7. So, so I because it's expected in 24. So it's going to be next year's phone, you'd have thought. But... Is anybody really using 6E everywhere yet or 6? I know I'm running 6 at home, but I can't imagine that many places are running these these new protocols. So it will come, but it will take time. So as with you, my supplier, U Ubiquity, uh, released a Wi-Fi 7 uh, access point 
Uh, you can buy one now if you want to. I don't have any devices that run Wi-Fi 7 at this point, but the testing looks good. You do get significantly more performance across your network on Wi-Fi 7. That's about the same sort of range as you do for 6 and 6E. So I think this is encouraging. I'm glad they're moving the standards along. I thought they're moving away from 2.4 gigahertz, 5 gigahertz, all these kind of things to 6, 7 was meant to make it a bit more obvious uh, what it was you were getting, but actually 7 means even less to me than 2.5 or 5 gigahertz, frankly, or 6 gigahertz as you can get with 6. So I, I'm glad that they the, the continue to push forward. Like you say, it's an alternative to Ethernet, Ethernet. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see a new standard. I don't feel any compelling reason to rush out and upgrade my access points at this point. I think it will come and with another application that demands it. Yep, and for clarity, the iPhone 15 Pro has got Wi-Fi 6E. So it's, I think 7 is just too new, but Wi-Fi 6E at 9.6 gigabits is probably good enough for most people. Yeah, I think that's fair. Anything else from Intro? No, I think that's it. Over to you for App of the Week. App of the Week this week is called Sleeve. It's actually Sleeve 2. It's an iteration of it. And all it is is if you run it and it was no, it was $6.99 I paid. You can buy it on the App Store as well, but I choose not to buy my software on the App Store where possible. That's my own personal choice for lots of reasons. What it gives you is a very flexible album art that you can stick anywhere on your desktop, basically. So I can have it in the bottom right-hand corner of whatever screens I've got attached, or top left, or in the middle, or whatever. And it gives you a dynamic album art with play, pause, and advance buttons on there, and a volume control, should you choose it, that changes with the song. That's all it does but it's really handy to have that little clickable element on your desktop if you want to advance on it to the next song or something like that. I've been really impressed with it. And the other nice little thing it does is when the song changes on Apple Music or Spotify or Deezer or one of the other ones, but I didn't, I only wanted it for Apple Music Plus, frankly, the icon changes in your dock as it, as it goes as well. So it's a very small, very simple thing, very well written and does exactly what I wanted to do. So Sleeve is my app of the week. That's quite cool. I quite like the sound of that. If I use my Mac more, I'd probably be up for this. Absolutely. Uh, and my thing of the week, I've gone for something a little bit off the wall. Um, I've gone for my water bottle. I really like this water bottle. It's a company called 24 Bottles. But I was amazed with it. I, I bought it while I was on holiday. I haven't bought any over here, but I've included an Amazon link. It's just incredibly light. You pick it up and think, how is it this light? And I love it because before, when I would go to London as I am tomorrow, I would leave my big heavy water bottle in my car because I, I don't want to lug that around. I'll just buy some water when I'm in town. Whereas now I would take it with me because it's just so light and I think it's fantastic. So that is my recommendation. It's not one of those super insulated water bottles, but it does maintain the, the water's temperature. Obviously, you can put other beverages in it. I largely just use it as a reusable water bottle. It's fantastic. And that's what I'm going to recommend this week. Why did you go for this one and not the most popular brand in the UK for water bottles? Chili's. I had a Chili's before and I just got annoyed because it was so heavy. And that's what I mean. This one's just so like I just saw it while I was on holiday, and it takes a pint of water, which is a pretty good amount, I think. But it's like I say, it's just incredibly light, and I just thought it looked cool. So there you go. That's my recommendation. Fair enough. Not a bad recommendation. I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think that's it. So uh, if everyone wants to get into contact, Rod is at g5maniac at maston.scott. I'm at underscore cjp at maston.social. Or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Mm-hmm.